Alan Crane Productions in association with Emergent Life Studio presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 190 for Spring Semester 2024. Today, financial institutions, and then we'll move on to financial uh, statements. But before we do that, as always, we're going to look at the numbers as we have in the past. Now, if we look at these numbers, I usually ask, is this a bull day or a bear day? But in this case, it is an utterly flat day for most of the markets. Look at this. You've got... It's actually, it, it, there was a bull run right at the bell. You see that bull run as the bell came on? And then it just sort of dropped off and then hit the bottom and bounced. NASDAQ is still all over the place, but it's still up. And then the Russell has achieved a little bit. The thing here is that what seems to be going on is a lot of wait and see. A couple of big things. The heavies in the uh, S&P 500, some of the heavies, are releasing earnings this week. And uh, on one hand, you know, they might be good. On the other hand, they might not be bad. But we just don't seem to have a direction right now. Another wild card is the Federal Reserve. There are some who are thinking that the Federal Reserve, for the first time in some years, is going to actually cut the discount rate at its next meeting. I don't personally think they're going to do that. I think they're going to hold the rate where it is for the time being. Even though we seem to have finally beaten down the inflation, there's still some worry that the expected inflation is still there. And that's the critical one. It's not inflation that is of concern in financial markets. It's expected inflation. That's the one that is hard to kill. After you kill an inflation, the market and put an inflation premium into interest rates. We've got to make sure that that is drained out. In other words, strangle down the economy until it, it cries uncle. But that may still be a while. The Fed may not lower. But right now, it's just one of those markets where the players are staying on the sidelines. They're going to keep the, vol, the volume low for a while. Uh, just... I'll see what comes next. Now, also, there is some concern. Wars generally, rumors of war, don't really rattle markets too much unless there is something really significant going on. And we're at that point now where we've had another attack by uh, Iran-backed forces and now there's and it kills a few of our soldiers so we have some concern that the president is going to act aggressively against Iran and our hope is that that's not going to be what happens we'll take some hardcore action but it won't be bombing the whoopee do out of the country itself crude oil notice that it is coming down commodity And that's always, of course, good news for gas prices. And we do want these gas prices to stay low because those are the fuel, as it were, that 
uh, moves goods and sir goods from one place to another, and so we like to have that oil price down there in some calm, comfortable place, so that we don't have high gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel prices. Now coming over here, gold had a little, as you can see, there's been this waving up and down and up and then it's coming back down. Like I said, there is something of a neckline, sort of a psychological $2,000 an ounce uh, line there. And it seems to still be staying above that, but it's not really too spectacular right now. So that's good. And the silver is quiet too. It dropped, they're both dropping off a cliff right now. So that's kind of nice. Now, I want to mention currencies, and I'm not going to ever delve too far into them. But when you have currencies trading, and this is important for much bigger subjects and more important to our class, interest rates in an economy are the price or the rental rate, as it were, of the currency of that economy. So relatively to other countries. So if interest rates in the United States are higher than interest rates, let's say, in Europe, that will mean that the US dollar will be stronger against the euro. The US dollar will appreciate against the euro or in any other country. If our interest rates are lower or going down relative to interest rates in another country, the U.S. dollar will depreciate. It's cheaper. It's worth less because the rental rate of our interest rates are lower. So if the Fed does act to lower interest rates, that could be a sign that the dollar is going to depreciate against the euro. Well, spank me Jesus. Look at that. A little bit of international market expectation. You see, Europe and Great Britain got on the anti-inflation bandwagon later than we did. To the Federal Reserve credit, and I don't always give them credit for much, they attacked the inflation rapidly, jacked up the interest rates in the United States to throttle off the inflation and the expectation of inflation. So now we're on the downside of the slope. We can ease off our interest rates, whereas the Europeans, the British, and other countries must still keep theirs up there for a while longer to throttle off their inflations in their countries. So, hence, you might see a, a depreciation of the dollar against the other currencies just because of that. Now, I will caution you that the yen is quoted backwards simply because the yen is uh, such a small value compared to the dollar. We actually have to quote the exchange rate in reverse so we don't have to use scientific notation for it. But anyway, that aside, let me go back over here. Let's have a look at our bonds. Bond yields, look at that. Did you, do you see how they're dropped? They've fallen. Now they've done a little recovery since the opening bell. But that 10-year benchmark is well down. The yield is down. Now remember that this isn't a price. This is a yield. So the price would be going up. So there's buying of the bonds, 
which causes the price to appreciate, which causes the yield to fall. Finance, this is something that in 240, this is harder to do than it is with you folks. You're more key to finance, finance and economic concepts. But even for you, it takes a while for this to soak in these kinds of chains of logic. And this is all just science. It's the mathematics of prices and yields and the economics behind supply and demand dynamics and all of that kind of stuff. So we see the 10-year bond has fallen, uh, the yield has, reflecting some expectation that the Fed might back off interest rates soon enough. And so everything is about what is expected to happen. History, as you see again, doesn't mean anything to us. It's what we think is about to happen next. Because if we're not there to grab it before it happens, then the son of a bitch next to us is going to be there to grab it when it happens, uh, before it happens. That's how we work. We're, it's a, just a, a gamesmanship. We've got to move before something happens. Because if we move when it happens or after it happens, well, then it's too late. It's sort of like in the service. Imagine you were my battle buddy, and you, you wait until the bullet hits you to react to it. Yeah. Oh, I better get out of the way. Oh, damn, that hurts. You see, you're going to try to move before it gets to you. That's You're going to, see, because by the time, well, two days ago I got shot. Look at that. Son of a, son of a biscuit eater. I'm bleeding. Uh, you got to do things before they happen. That's what we are all about in finance. History and those charts and all of that. That's not where the markets look. They look out there. What's the best understandings? And I've mentioned this before, but it's so rough now that we already knew that there was one brokerage house that could see prices in the future with a high probability, about 70%. Now, my information is pretty old here. A couple of years ago, the, uh, they could see about more than 100 milliseconds into the future, what a price would be with an accuracy of about 70%. Right where we are now, it's getting better, uh, a little bit farther out. And with these idiotic AI nutcase computers that can fast process data that's incomprehensible, we're, it's going to get more that we can, they can see what's going to happen there and make it happen here. Now, you can get into some really, really twisted physics um, doing that if they go too far, but that's your problem, uh, not mine. Okay, now, Tokyo last night. Tokyo had a surge day. You notice that there was some good news, and it was just more than just one piece of good news. There was kind of a flow of optimism in the market. Do you see that? It just kept rolling up. It wasn't anything spectacular, but there was just more bull, more bull action than bear action. And so that allowed the markets, the uh, Nikkei 225 uh, in Tokyo, to push upward through the day. But you notice that there by the little after their lunchtime, it began to sag back off again because the good news had passed and then there was a little more realism about what 
what was going on and the euphoria kind of passed, but none of it was really dramatic. It was just mostly uh, very mild, positive sentiment, bullish sentiment, and then later a little bit of bearish sentiment, possibly some profit taking off the high. And that's not, as I said, oftentimes you'll see a rise and then there will be a pull off from it as some of the investors say, well, I've done good for the day. I'm going to sell out and go have my dinner uh, with my profit kind of thing. So that's nothing surprising. You notice that London, as you've seen before, see that volatility there? That's There's more uncertainty. The, the bulls and the bears were just battling back and forth. Like I said, though, as with um, the Nikkei, it all amounted to a 0.03% up day, which is basically saying the day was flat. From the start to the finish, it was a flat day. When you got 0.03%, that's not even worth worrying about. Generally speaking, and I think I mentioned this before, anything less than about a quarter of a percent, 0.25%, is pretty much, you know, a, it's a flat nothing to read from it. If, however, all of the markets are up by 0.20%, well, that's a little bit more to say. Well, they were not terribly bullish, but it was across the board that they had this mild bullish sentiment. Now, going through a few, we have companies that are going to be pulling uh, earnings out, and I'm thinking... Advanced Micro Devices, I think, is on tap for earnings this week. And let me see when the earnings call is. Usually I can see this down here. Yeah, today. Earnings are today. And they may have already been released pre-market. And it's a little bit of a smackdown. One and a third percent down, and it's still pulling downward. Really nasty. You, we're going off a cliff here. Look at that. So, there you go. Now, your turn. See if you can remember what I've told you here. <laughs> I, you may see it already, but let's try this. First of all, uh, Madam, is this a low-risk or a high-risk stock? Or a market-risk type of stock? What does it say? It's okay if you don't do it. Yeah, we're going to do this every day. That's that's fine. What do you say? High risk. Uh, this falls into the technical category. High risk AF. Okay. You might want to remember that in your notes. One point seven zero is really risky. One is yeah. Above what number? One. Like one is market risk. Anything below one is less volatile in a well-diversified portfolio than the market. Above one. Now, when you get to 1.25, that's when you start feeling your hind leg itch. When you get up to about 1.5, well, then you're in the territory where it's, your back leg is starting to go up and down. This is, this one's hardcore. It has, has a history of that beta. A beta above one, well above one. Far above one. 
Now, usually you'll see 1.25, 1.2, And if you get up far enough, it, it, it gets to the point where, in a case like this, we're in a business where one of our terms we always keep in our minds is appropriateness of investment. Appropriateness of investment. You have to keep that remembering that term. Because that doesn't apply if you're, well, if you're in a corporation and you're in charge, you're corporate, but you're in charge of putting money in uh, the, their earnings, their positive ca free cash flow into investments, what is appropriate versus what is not. Here's a hint. AMD would not be appropriate in almost any corporation. They don't want you taking uh, risk with those retained earnings. So, yeah, okay. Now, but then, okay, you're on the level of advising, being a financial advisor. You've got a couple in their uh, mid-60s, and they want to put their money into investments for their, to earn money for their retirement, get a check every month or every three months or whatever. This is not in any way, shape, or form appropriate for them. They, you don't want them having to eat cat food because they had this, their investment go into the toilet. The same would be true even for you. Very few, well, okay, if you're young, you can recover from a hard hit. And at 1.70, you'll be up one day, and then the next day you'll be on the street with a hat looking for change from passersby. This might not be even appropriate for you, but at a young age, at least if you did take this risk and it didn't work out, you'd have time to recover much wiser than you were before. But investments like this are more for high risk takers, the high rollers who that's their thing is to do this. So that appropriateness of investment, I can't emphasize that enough in our business is you ask yourself, okay, this looks like fun. Well, fun is a relative term. You've, anyway, um, now, the P-E ratio. I'm laughing because I didn't know I was about to walk into this. P-E ratio. Do you remember the number that I said was like the fulcrum for P-E ratio? 30. A price to earnings below 30 means that the stock is undervalued relative to intrinsic. The price is lower than the earnings can, can support. And so it has some, some, we have some reason to believe that the price will go up so that the P-E ratio, that price divided by earnings, will get closer to 30. If the stock is a much above 30, and again, 30 is mine, some say 25, some say 40. But if it's much above your intrinsic value P-E-T-E, then you say to yourself, eh, this stock is overvalued and it has a good chance of coming back down over time. Now, we have here a stock which has a P-E ratio that is in the technical range of stupid. This is 1,591 which means that an investor is willing to pay $1,591 for every dollar the company has earned for the shareholders. 
years. That's insane. They think that AMD is going to turn a dollar that the company has made at the net income line. The company is going to turn that into each one of those dollars into $1,591. Yeah. You should short it. Oh, I would say this is, I mean, you should short this one. I mean, I don't even care what Wall Street Bet says. This is a short asking for trouble. I'm going to teach you about shorts and uh, trading strategies with shorts a little later in the course. When I get to the part where I teach you the terminology of buying and selling, how you, what the wording we use is, what the strategies are, and what the kind of simple tricks are so that you don't get yourself burned when you put in orders or when you make sell, sell orders and all that. But yeah, this one is absolutely stupid. Notice that this company doesn't pay a dividend. <coughs> See that? Forward dividend and yield? No dividend. And this stock, actually, the company is barely profitable. It's made 11 cents a share. So, I mean, you know... Yeah, whoop de doo 11 cents, and we made 11 cents a share, so we're going to pay almost $1,600 for every dollar of earnings. Yeah, what about that? Okay, now, just to remind you, the bid on this, whoa, look at the volume on that. Now, you see the volume? Now, look at the bid-ask spread. You see how tight the bid-ask spread is? It's a one penny. 175.10 if you want to sell it, 175.11 if you want to buy it. That's a very tight bid-ask spread. And that's because of, look at that volume. We're not even halfway through the day. We're, uh, we're not even close to halfway through the day. And we've already topped half of the volume of a typical day. So there's a lot of activity on this. And that lot of activity is mostly because, apparently, and I had, didn't get a chance to look at it, they came out with rather grim earnings for the day compared to what they had said they would. So the markets are simply giving them a potty training session for this one. Let me look at another one that's coming up. Merck. Merck. M-R-K. I think they're giving earnings out too. Tame. Oh, this one's an interesting one. Look at this. Okay, notice the bid-ask spread. You see, if you want to buy the stock, you're going to pay $120.94. If you want to sell it, you'll get it, get $120.91. It's still a pretty tight bid-ask spread, $0.03 cents on $120. And notice a couple of other things real quick here. The volume is very normal. It's tight. I can see. I can, well, let me come up here. I can see this stock is actually near its 52-week high. Do you see that? Look at the 52-week range right here. Do you see that? Now, the price right now is up near the top. So for this the last 52 weeks, this thing is actually sitting near its high for that period. Okay, now. Real quick over here. First of all, okay, your turn, madam. Is this a risky or a safe stock? Safe. Very safe. It's. I mean, you would expect that with a company, a big, long-standing, 
pharmaceutical company. They're going to make money because people think that they, if they take their uh, Merck meds, they won't die. And that's always a good, that's always good for a sale. You can buy our stuff or you can die, sucker. And all that kind of stuff. Good news. And then uh, the P.E. ratio, though. Now, this is more what you would normally see. It's overvalued. I see that the price is up there high enough that the price divided by earnings is well above 30. So I would say it's overvalued. So I would anticipate some downside momentum on the price of the stock. Uh, just because of that. Now, notice that it's a profitable company, $1.80 a share. So if you multiplied that by the number of shares outstanding, you'd get your net income or something like that. And notice that this one actually pays a little dividend, a decent dividend. So even if the stock price goes to, through the toilet, you're going to get a dividend check in the mail. So that also makes a company have a hot lower beta in general because there's that underneath that you won't, uh, you, you're going to get something out of it. So when you see the yield, which it matters to us, when you see that yield, that's telling you that uh, you're going to get a check for $3.08 for an investment of $120.79. So in other words, you know that if that dividend stays at $3.08, you got a 2.55% return on your investment right there, annual. So that's why you, that yield, it matters to us because it's going to be there and a company that doesn't pay one, well, you're, all you can do is make, the only way you make money is off the stock price going up. And if it doesn't, you don't have that happy little dividend. Now I'm going to go over here and have one last, one more look at Tesla. Okay, here we go. One more time, just to make sure you understand why I say this is ridiculous. Okay, sir, save for a risky stock, uh, risky AF. This one is even worse than AMV. This is not an appropriate investment for any... Okay, the type of investor you would, who would go for stocks like that is what we technically call a crazy mofo. Uh, you, are asking, you are asking for a butt back on that one. Notice P-E ratio. Is it overvalued or undervalued or appropriately valued? What would you say? I would say it's overvalued. Yes. Scary thing is, might be two times overvalued because sixty, a price the price to create sixty in order to bring it to thirty, that price would have to be half of what it is now, and that's why I was talking to some uh, two market makers just last night who work in a, a market making environment, and they're saying eighty, eighty to ninety, and. They're probably looking at, at one of their metrics for their forecasts. They're looking at P-E ratio, 80 to 90 on it. And uh, you'll hear a whole lot of sobbing and crying on Wall Street because they've put so much into it and they can't dare get out too fast. Okay, so, and one more. Anyone want to see something? What? Well, yeah. Don't a lot of companies have, like, major... Plays in Tesla, so like if you went down to oh god, yeah. So, but that was one of the things. It, it, uh, we're going to get into this a little bit. The IBs are in it, obviously, and uh, funds 
heavy heavy duty funds. Most corporations, companies, just plain companies, that would be against their policy to be buying stock in Tesla. They might, but it would be surprising if there weren't heads rolling because of that. Because normally, as I had said a few minutes ago, companies that have excess cash to make investments tend to not want to put those new investments at much risk. And any financial analyst worth his salt that wasn't being paid by Tesla or one of its toadies on Wall Street knew two years ago this was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. So any analyst in a company that was looking at reputable resources would have said no. However, banks went into it. Certain types of specialized banks went into it. The investment bankers on Wall Street and in other countries went into it because they don't have those stops on what they invest in. And so, yeah, they're sitting on the line for an awful, awful lot of money right now counted in the tens of billions, if not the hundreds of billions. Then that's a, that's a problem. Uh, I don't know. I can't get into it. I'd have to look at more of the disclosures. But from what I've heard, certain countries are uh, heavily invested or the powerhouses in like Saudi Arabia. Go ahead. I remember like two years ago, the price of one stock was like a thousand bucks. Yeah, and they kept splitting the stock, and then it would go up, and then it tanked, split it again, go up, tank. Yeah, it's been a very grim road for the stock. And we knew this would happen, but the problem is that you get hustlers who have an interest in stirring up the pot. This is true in the financial news networks. It's true in the entertainment industry. It's true in the blogs. You don't get followers. You don't get ad revenue by being the the asshole, the bitch, the naysayer. You just don't get it. You have to hype. You have to pump. And you have that way you get money from the people behind the curtain and you also get money from ad revenue on impressions on your uh, if it's an internet site. So You've got to think for yourselves, and that's what I do, is I get you to start thinking for yourselves that way. And you're not going to make as much money doing it the way I, uh, as if you're a hype merchant, go for it. Know, know that you are, you don't believe this for you. You don't really believe it, but you got to hype it. Mm. Anyone got another sock before I get to the main lecture? <laughs> Nothing that's interesting to you. Say? AT&T. ATT. Whoops. Well, the market's just a little bitchy today. Okay, now this one's an interesting one. Glad you brought it up. Because this shows you something else. Well, okay, the bid and ask are the same there. I don't buy that. That's delay, yeehaw delaying quotes. But notice that it for the last 52 weeks, and I'm showing you some of the numbers that we do look at. We just have a look at these. This is part of your pattern of analysis. And, and uh, I see that it's sitting right about in the middle of its 52-week. You see that? It swung from about 13.5 to 20.5, and, and right now it's sitting at 17 and some change. 
so it's right in the middle. The vol is pretty much normal. It's it, the bears are kind of beating it up today, but you see the beta is below one. Relatively safe investment. It's a giant company, and it's it, it it's one of the powerhouses in mobile networks as well as a lot of other things. And PE ratio is telling us this is undervalued. So this has uh, this has some room to come up. And so as far as more of a when do you buy in? Now that doesn't mean you buy in and then sell. But when do you buy in? It's when the PE ratio on a stock is slow. That, that, that's at least some assurance that you're not going to take a butt bath on it. I know that it's got some room on the upside because of that PE ratio. So let me just grab some of it now and put it into my more or less my long-term portfolio. And, or if I have some, add to it uh, kind of thing. Okay, and you see that this is a very profitable company and nearly $2 per share of earnings and it paid oh that's a fat ass dividend do you see that thing look see that yield on that 6.42 percent yield dividend yield so in other words even if the stock tanks you got a darn nice dividend you paid 17 dollars and 13 cents that's like getting a checking account or a bank account uh where you money you put in pays 6.42 percent you can't beat that and on a stock with a beta that's three quarters of the market uh, and a undervaluation on the PE ratio. Well, that's a pretty decent, that that's, tells you there are a lot of signals in this one that this would be something that you would put into a responsible portfolio. Now would be the time. Well, the PE ratio is low, so it, and also simply you've got a really darn nice dividend yield on it. So this is more of the kind that you would think to yourself, Hmm, yeah, I think that this is one that I would probably go for. And I'll show you more about calculating your projected holding period, annual holding period returns, over the next few lectures as we go forward in time. But there you go. This is, and you've seen actually kind of a nice garden variety from the sublime with AT&T to the ridiculous like AMD and Tesla today. And it's your call, but... The one thing I will be darned if I leave this, uh, leave you at the end of the semester with, I will make sure that you know how to think for yourselves, how to look at the numbers and stop listening to others, including me. The great commander is the one who doesn't need to be one after he has properly trained his soldiers. That's the whole idea. Now, let me get into some financial stuff here. And I mentioned this first one before. Let me kill this so that I can get lights back up. Okay. Uh, first things first. Big term for us is financial intermediation. And I think I've got mentioned it. Financial intermediation is the matching of surplus and deficit economic units. Financial intermediation is the matching of surplus and deficit economic units. Here's a surplus unit, and here is a deficit economic unit.
matching those is financial intermediation. Now, don't think that that necessarily means, oh, a bank or something like that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Financial intermediation can be informal. Financial intermediation is now happening in uh, cyberspace with smart contracts. There is no bank in the middle of a smart contract. So the world is changing. 10 years, oh, 20 years ago, well, this is done by a certain type, certain types of bank, by golly. Well, now, uh, about anything. Or, a matter of fact, you might need $20, and you might have some money. I know both of you. You tell me about your need, and you tell me about your bounty. And so I, oh, and you guys get together. Over coffee, I'll pay for it. We're good. That would be a financial intermediation. Match it. I match However, it is not as easy as that. Because this can't work unless three things work or match. The first is the level. That's a fancy word for the amount. Level. The in other words, you have to have, the surplus unit has to have what the deficit unit wants. You, sir, might be a very wealthy man, but you're not going to lend anyone more than $100. You need $1,000, no match. That's it. Game over. The next one is timing. Okay, you've got $100, you need $100. Criterion 1 is done. Level is the same. But you want to lend out $100. You don't want it back in for another six months. But you want to hold it off. You want to pay it back in five years. No match, because the timings are off. So the timing has to be there. And then finally, risk. You, madam, I need $1,000. You have $1,000. I want to pay it back in six months, and you would like to have your money back in six months. So both the first ones. But then you look at me and you say, you are risky. No, you're, you're a yeti. You're an animal. I, I, you're probably going to be dead by then. You're old. Oh, don't imagine it. It hurts. It just hurts. <laughs> so there, the risk, the, the, there's too much risk. You would prefer not to have that risk. I'll give you an example, interestingly enough. In the world of insurance, and I'll get into this a little later. There are a lot of surplus to deficit economic units. Interestingly, one entity could be both at the same time. At some point, you are building up a 401k, you're doing good, you're 30 years old, and you decide that you, and, you, know, you make investments through your 401k, but you want to buy a house. You can't buy the house. You've got to go to a bank to get that house. So 
with respect to investments in a long-term environment managed by someone else, you're a surplus unit. But with respect to buying a house, well, you're not. You're a deficit economic unit. So you could be both at the same time. Now, I'll give you some examples here. Uh, there are uh, banks are not permitted, well, kind of not permitted, at least not to any great extent, to uh, put uh, make investments, make loans in speculative markets because they destabilize the bank's long-term prospects and all that. So you would have a bank that could have a lot of money, but it wouldn't be willing to do uh, a, a real estate, a speculative real estate project in Chicago or somewhere, although God knows some of them tried to, and then the auditors catch them, all that kind of stuff. But uh, take one like, for example, a life insurance company. Life insurance companies are major, major surplus economic units. I mean vast amounts of money because they get those premiums from all those people coming in and it builds up these large piles of capital, of funds. Now, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, though. You, sir, you know you're going to die someday, right? But it's probably not going to be for a long, long time. Maybe even a hundred years. Well, in your case, maybe 20 years. A uh, hundred years. Uh, you're, you're going to be out there. Or 80 years, or something like that. So you see, a life insurance company would not want an investment that would bring its returns back immediately. Or even for 20, 30, 50 years. Uh, 40 years. See, that would be that they would be one of those where the timing is long, long haul. I gave you the example of commercial paper last Wednesday, where you've got companies that have some extra cash for a few weeks or a few months, and then, and so they would like to do something with it, but they sure want that money back when they have to pay their bills. I'll tell you a Funny story about this, and you're going to hear stories from me all through this semester, so get used to it. There was a company uh, not far from here. It had gotten a payment in of a large amount of money. And so this was where Treasury was going to put it into some short-term investments, commercial paper and money market uh, instruments, short-term CDs, stuff like that. And they went to check on the amount of money, and suddenly there was hardly any in the account. They were just going crazy. What the hell happened? Well, it turned out someone in their accounts payable saw all that money and paid off all these bills. Now, these were bills that had terms like uh, due in 30 days, due in 45 days. But, well, I, I got the money, so I better pay it right now. And oh my God, there, that poor young puppy who did that. I, it was like watching a um, the, the treasury official, a risk manager, lawyer. She, a cruel, vicious woman. It was like seeing an, an orca finding a baby seal and tossing it around in the ocean before eating parts of him just to make just to have fun. Mm. 
Yeah. You see, timing is going to be crucial in all kinds of financial intermediation. Risk is obviously a big issue, too. And the amount... Capital is flowing so efficiently now that it's just ridiculous anymore. So, uh, anyway... There you go. That's uh, the idea of financial intermediation. So who are the financial intermediaries? Well, they kind of, they don't come in any particular order, but there are definitely specializations within the industry. Example would be the IB, the investment banker. Some of you may get jobs or internships as an IB, with an IB. Those are the uh, very large houses that when a company wants to sell stock or wants to sell bonds, wants to sell stock to raise equity capital or wants to sell bonds to raise debt capital, uh, the IB, the investment bankers, if it's any kind of a big offering at all, they will underwrite it. They will buy the offering. That's a primary market transaction from last week. They buy... The issue. I'm using terminology here, and I'll use it over and over, and you'll get into it. They'll buy the issue. They bought the issue in the IPO of Facebook. They bought the issue in the IPO of Rivian. And we call it syndicates, because there will be a lead underwriter. You'll be the heavy. But then, well, gee, this is like $500 million. Let me get some other IBs involved in this, too. You form a syndicate. They'll say, well, I'll handle 50 million of it. I'll handle 75 million. They'll handle 250 million of it. So the syndicate, it's called a syndicate, that will underwrite the offer with a lead underwriter being you. You're sort of the one who brings it in. Your syndicate negotiates. I, let's say that I'm Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I'm much better looking, but anyway, I'm Mark. You and I will negotiate the price of it, uh, what the fees will be that will charge you to do this, and all of that kind of stuff. It's, a, it's a, an enormous process. You as the IB have to keep an eye on the market, on your clients, uh, to do what's best for them. Me as Mark Zuckerberg, I want the highest price per share that I can get so I get a lot of money out of this offering and all that. That's how IBs, a very simplified version of how IBs work, investment bankers. And like I said, that's hot, hot stuff. And some of you, uh, maybe two, three in a class this size, might in, end up in some kind of an IB. Now, there are the giant houses that are global. IBs, and then there are regionals that are still just huge, but uh, they they don't do anything anywhere in the world. Um, and then there are the small houses, boutique. You'll hear me use that term boutique for a lot of different things, but the boutique houses that might do some very small but highly prospective startups and things like that. Uh, I mean, they're, they're of all kinds of sizes. And you do make awfully good money if 
if you go into one of those, you've got the right character, you know where what the rules are, you know how to present yourself, you think very well, you've got coding skills behind you, you can do your Excel, you can do your economic analysis, you've got good skills with interpersonal skills and all that kind of stuff. They're, 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 I, I took my uh, finance students maybe six, seven years ago up to a, a regional IB that had its main office. I think that was its main office in Chicago in the, uh, in the financial district. And uh, it was kind of thing. They, they did a good show. They offered some internships. They had some internships available. And uh, I don't know if anyone ever got a permanent job out of that one or not. But uh, it's a really, really one of the core things in finance, the IBs. Now, another part, another type of bank is your typical commercial bank. It is nothing but a bank that does things like makes loans to individuals, loans to businesses. It has checking accounts, draft, uh, in other words, demand deposit accounts, and all of that kind of good stuff. Now, distinguish a bank, a commercial bank, from a credit union. They can do a lot of the same things, but credit unions do not offer demand deposit accounts. In other words, they don't offer checking accounts. You're saying, now wait a minute, fat boy, I've got a checking account at a, at a credit union. No, you don't. It looks like one, it smells like one, it farts like one, except that it is a negotiable order of withdrawal account. Now, on any given day, you walk in, I've got a check, that was written to me from a credit union, I go in, they'll, they'll honor it. $100, $1,000. They don't have to. They almost always will. But a negotiable order of withdrawal account does not have the instant liquidity of a demand deposit account. For most and all intents and purposes, they look the same, but they are not quite the same. They even have their own regulatory body. So <laughs> keep that in mind. Now, another thing, just as a side quick note here. When you go to a bank, okay, let's try this. No do that. You, sir, you want to live the dream. You want to buy a home. You've got your eye on this double wide house trailer on the outskirts of Decatur. There's enough room for you and your woman and her eight kids from a previous marriage. Mm -hmm. On the weekends, you do Elvis impressions and impersonations for a children's party. She works as a part-time assistant manager at a Jiffy Lube near Springfield, living the dream. You come to me. I should like to borrow a mortgage. I said, no, you don't. Yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. You're going to borrow on a loan. It will have a mortgage attached to it. That is collateral. The mortgage agreement is not the loan itself. The mortgage agreement is the attachment to make something I can take when you go tap city, and you will. Mainly because you decided to start that strange business in that outbuilding where you come out with a gas mask on. As soon as I get that loan, I, I made him the loan. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sell it. I am not in the business of the bank of holding those kinds of assets. 
I'm going to sell it to what's called a secondary mortgage market. I'm going to flip that loan, I'm going to package up all the loans for the day, and I'm going to turn them into one thing, and I will sell it to you, a representative for Ginny May, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, one of those. Those trillion dollar international funds. They buy the loans, they squish them together into this massive ball, and then they cut them into different parts, depending upon what parts of the cash flow uh, certain investors want. I'll get rid of it. But I still make my payments to the bank. Yes, they will get a fee for servicing the loan. They'll take care of that. But they don't want your loan. That's not their thing. They are merely a pass-through agent. Okay, that's commercial banks, credit unions. There are other animals, too, out there. One, mutual funds. Mutual funds are kind of cool. They Essentially, you join a mutual fund. And then that mutual fund takes your money and that you deposit and it puts it into stocks and bonds. And then you make money. Uh, you can get the money out, but oftentimes you could just you could watch your shares, your ownership of that mutual fund go up. As a fund, you make money in the fund, you get more. Uh, more shares in the fund. Uh, now, a couple of different kinds of uh, mutual funds. No load, low load, and high load. That means how much money you have to pay as a fee to join. If you ever pay a fee to a, a mutual fund, you're stupid. You know, there are so many no loads out there that do great. Now, another cool thing about mutual funds is you can actually, there are just tens of thousands, families of funds offered by Fidelity, PIMCO, Invesco, whatever. You can target, tailor. Well, I like a fund that would be kind of international, okay? Or I'd like a fund that was mainly in healthcare, okay? Or I, I'd like a fund that has high dividends, okay? There, uh, there are just tons of them out there. And uh, it's a wonderful way, as a matter of fact, a lot of retirement plans allow you to manage your own money and they, you can, they offer you, well, we work with this mutual fund family, so choose something in there, it's something you can do. It's, a, it's good news. It's a, it's a way to participate in the market and you've got professionals managing the fund, so they're not doing stupid things and all that, and some of them are good and some of them aren't so great. Now, if you are managing a mutual fund, getting into a little bit back into the investment side of it, normally you, you, okay, I want to have my money in three mutual funds. So what you do is you have a list of 10 or more than that, that you always keep an eye on. And every year, in those mutual funds, you look at your lowest performers and you kick them out and put in the best of the ones that you're looking at. You're skimming the uh, cream off your mutual fund maybe every year. Now remember, you can't just willy-nilly buy and sell mutual funds. You'll have windows when you can do it, but during a window. Or you can look at the economy. I see the economy is doing really great, so I'm going to balance more towards mutual funds that are stock-oriented. And or the economy looks like it's kind of beginning to turn on us, so maybe I'd rebalance to go more toward mutual funds that have bonds in them. 
These are simple rules. And I will tell you right now that the simpler the rule, the more likely you are to be a long-run winner. Just keep an eye on it. Just have you know, a, a little group of them that you're always keeping your eye on. And then make a rule every six months, every year, when I can. I just move out the lowest performer and put in the highest. Or maybe a couple, the lowest two, and put in the two from my, uh, from my backlist. Okay, those are mutual funds. Now, there are other things. I mentioned life insurance companies as financial intermediaries and also as sources of capital. Now, remember, money is short-term, capital is long-term. Many sources like that. And then there are, of course, all the dark places where there is uh, stuff. There, there's a playground. Another one, which is in the evil darkest of the dark, would be a place like um, what we call private equity funds. They essentially a private equity fund. You're a corporation that's in trouble. My private equity fund will come in and we'll say, we're going to help you out here. We're going to get you out of your problems. First things, we're going to rearrange your uh, your supply chain gets things made in China instead of with these expensive Americans. And we're going to also lend you a large amount of money. And we're also going to take some stock in your corporation. And then the fund begins. We get things realigned. You, a lot of layoffs in the United States. Another factory in China says, oh, this is good. And then we pipe it pump your stock up, and we dump the stock. And then, of course, we didn't change your management. You're still crap. You eventually collapse, and then, as the bondholders, we take over your company. See, because the bondholders will shut you down if you can't pay the bills. You can't pay us our, our interest payment. I guess we're just going to have to take you over and cut you up, turn you into juices, and sell them to our friends. That's how private equity funds work. You're going to say, well, I wouldn't do that if I know that's going to... Yes, you will. You're so desperate. You will take the first con man who comes to you with a good suit on and a lot of money he can write out of a checkbook. Sure you will. And right now, I mean, the examples is I could throw you one example after another. Sears... Staples. The big one now that we're talking about is Panera. Panera fell into the trap in 2017, and uh, we're pre predicting it's got a year to live before it dies, and the um, fund, uh, the, the private equity fund takes it. Okay, follow that? Now, understand that a, the, this one and the next one I give you are both almost completely unregulated. And there are two reasons for this. They are unregulated because, one, the investors, the big dogs who do them, and are wealthy enough that the SEC, FINRA, they say, they know enough, we don't need to, we, we, we don't need to be their nanny. The other reason, the darker reason, is because these funds have so much money they can buy any politician they want. So every year when there's screams of regulate these damn sons of bitches, 
Well, they just go in and make some campaign contributions. Money goes into super PACs. And all that self-righteousness just kind of fizzles away. That's how it works. So now, mutual funds. They're not quite as evil. Mutual funds, uh, I'm sorry, hedge funds, hedge funds. Da, da, da. Hedge funds, they started out mainly just as what the name implies, hedge funds. They would help companies hedge away risks that the companies didn't want to bear. It was part of their core business. I told you the stories about hedge funds, how they, uh, if you are a farmer, you want to grow corn. You don't want to speculate on corn prices. You want to grow corn. I mean, that's what you do. And so you could, a whole huge group of co-ops could get together and come to a hedge fund and say, well, can you make it so that if corn prices go down, we'll lose on the corn prices, but we'll make money on something? Or if corn prices go up, we'll make money on that something, even if we, even though we're losing, uh, we'll make money on the corn, but we'll lose on the other something. So that in other words, the risk is gone, or at least highly muted, so that you have a stable income as a farmer from year to year. When corn prices are low, you lose on the corn, but you win on the futures contracts. When corn prices are high, you win on the corn, but you lose on the futures contract. But you get a stable income. You are no longer in the business of corn price volatility. That's what, hedge, that's what hedging is all about on the, on the bright side. There's a dark side to hedging, too, the speculators who take the opposite side. But that, that, taking that aside, you follow what I'm doing here is... That was what hedge funds do. Uh, but they've gotten into a lot of other things now. But generally speaking, they have a, a higher reputation than private equity funds. They're not out to destroy anything. Private equity, I mean, I've, I've been working to create a private equity fund in another country just because, I mean, it's worship Satan. It's okay. Uh, at least until you go to hell. But then again, I'm here in Illinois, so there's that. But anyway, you understand that this is what those are. Now, there's one more that I want to mention here. ETFs, electronically traded funds. ETFs are, well, let me show you an ETF. ETFs, when you look at an ETF, you look at a stock. But that stock represents a portfolio of stocks managed by professionals. Here's one. Uh, go to Yahoo. Uh, what's, didn't want to do that. What's your favorite ETF? Uh, I've got one, but I sure am not going to tell you because then you go in and take my win away from me. Okay. This is Spider. Spider is the Standard Poor's 500. You buy a share of SPY. You own a massively well-balanced, diversified portfolio of 500 companies. For $487.86. Imagine it this way. You, sir, you are at the Finance Singles Bar. I, we'll talk. I mean, 
they're, they're placed on the chamber for it. Okay. Yeah, they will swipe left. And you go in there, and some very attractive person comes up to you and says, So, what do you do? Why, I'm an investor. <laughs> well, what kind of a portfolio do you have? Well, I hold the standard of course 500. Wow. You do, but it's because you own the SPY, you own the whole 500. That's that other person hears that, you will not go home alone. Okay? Has that worked for you before? Hell no. <laughs> Take one look at my face. But you're a Yeti, ew. Okay. But understand what I'm saying here is that you can diversify, professionally manage. Let me show you something real quick here. Uh, look at the beta. It's got the beta of the mark world portfolio. Well, not surprisingly, because you'd own 70% of the world portfolio. It's a mark, it's basically the market. So the market and you will go the way the same way. It's not high risk, it's not low risk, it is the world market risk. In other words, that 1.00 says it has 100% of the volatility of the market, of the world market itself. Now, notice the expense ratio. Keep an eye on that. This is only 0.09. I'm a little bit skittish at anything above 0.3. That's for myself. It's just, I, 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 they're, they're charging you a fee. Of course they are. They're the professionals. They're every day balancing this portfolio, making sure that it has the portfolio control theory becomes practice. And we'll learn a little about portfolio control theory in this class. But that's their job, is to take care of that portfolio. And so you don't have to. You've got the S&P 500, and each stock in there is in the correct amount to maintain the balance of the portfolio as the prices change from day to day, they do it for you. Now there are other ones that are, let me show you one. I think I'll avoid that. There are, so many, I'm trying to think. Here's one. I ran into this a while back, and it's just so tempting. This is an ETF, PSIL. It is the stocks of a group of companies that are under license from the federal government studying psychedelic mushrooms, magic mushrooms to see if they can be used for therapeutic purposes on psychotic patients. Someone back there, yeah, man. <laughs> no, it, it's an ETF. So if you want to get into the good stuff, this is it right here. Uh, ETF, you can do anything. You can do the Russell, the ETF, the NASDAQ. There's a couple of them. Uh, 
Honestly, I don't know the difference between the different NASDAQ ETFs. How many stocks? The NASDAQ's like a zillion stocks. Do they buy them all or what? But they're, in every industry, you can go into ETFs that are oriented toward healthcare or toward international or toward in, industrial processes or consumer goods or based upon certain characteristics. There are ETFs that high, are uh, hold stocks that have high dividend yields. There are some that hold bonds. Here's one I want to show you. <coughs> this is a benchmark. AGG. And when I say that, others' bonds are measured against AGG, which is a pure bond fund. It is it is an ETF. I hope that's an ETF. Yeah, ETF. And it is, look at this. Beta, 1.00. Expense ratio, point, um, lousy 0.03%. So one thing that you could think about is, okay, I am an investor who wants to maintain over longer periods of time a, a good portfolio structure based upon the economy. So at good times, I might go 80% SPY, 20% AGG, and then as the economy begins to turn a little sour. And remember, these are stocks. You can buy them day and night. They're, they're stocks. It's not like mutual funds where you have to wait, wait. No, they're just, you trade these. You buy them and sell them, just like anything else, uh, any other stock. But behind them is an 800-pound gorilla, whatever is the portfolio that you're buying into. You follow that one? It's cool stuff. So the ETFs are, I, when I, okay, we all have our fun little slush portfolio, but your responsible big adult person portfolio should be well balanced. And we're going to learn about balance, about portfolio control, about all of that kind of stuff in this course. But you'll have, you know, I'll buy this stock or I'll buy that stock. And usually, sometimes you hear people talking about, well, I made a lot of money doing that. Well, yeah, but don't get biased by that. Let me try something with you. When you see lottery commercials, do you ever see lottery ticket buyers who lose money all the time? You don't see those people in ads. You see the people, I just made a million dollars. The same is true in stock markets, too. You'll have some idiot, I've got a system for win winning in the stock market, and you can have that system, too, for 1995. And if you order before midnight, I will also sell you a Ronco Benjamin. It's like the best in the Now, isn't that amazing? I want you to buy my system because I've made a lot of money. Question one, why are you hawking this if you've already made your money? Question two, why have you ever seen an ad on a, one of those stock market channels? Hi, I bought a lot of stocks and I've and I've lost my shirt. I am so poor I can't even afford to do a I'm PO Post because I'm stupid. And I want you to do, know my system and I'll sell you my system. No, you never see those kinds of people. Driving down the highway. You sir. You drive like a blind trout. You drive like a maniac. I'm driving along at the speed limit, single factor. And you go, boom, you, boom, boom. everybody's going faster than I am. Not everybody. You're not going to see the people who are going the speed that you're going. 
you will have a bias. And that's one of the problems we have in stock markets, in financial markets, is the bias that comes about. Last thing for today. This comes from the world of behavioral finance. You're going to go into a casino and you know you're going to lose every penny. Sometime during the night, you're going to be wiped out. But you also know that the first table, you have a good chance of winning. So are you going to play that table or are you going to walk out of the casino? Play the table. You play that table and you see the next table and you think, I've got a good chance of winning at that table. And you play that table. Now you know that you're going to lose with your strategy. But every next move seems to be one that works. That's called behavioral finance. It's a new twist. <coughs> Where economics would say rational agent, you say FTS, you walk out right away. You don't play. But behavioral finance tells us, no, you won't. You'll keep gaming until you lose. That's why the responsible people, us in finance, try to educate or help people not make that mistake. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.